In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies, it is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, one of the pioneers of surf music and the classic surfer anthem, Wipeout, reveals how UFOs have influenced his music. There is definitely something, I can't really say for sure because I don't know, something happened when that UFO sighting because I, I could feel it and right away as soon as I got in the house I picked up my guitar and just turned on the tape recorder and it came out. But many of my songs since then have come out that way, even songs that have nothing to do with UFOs. This podcast is supported by Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, it's time to bring in the professionals. Call 1-866-724-0800. 1-866-724-0800. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serres. 
Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Well, we're in a bit of a celebratory mood here in the Serrett household. Our beloved Toronto Maple Leafs defeated the defending Stanley Cup champs last night, the Washington Capitals, quite handily, actually, 6-3. to three. And hopefully that win will mark the end of a bit of a slide for the Leafs. Is this our year? I think uh, we're still missing one blue chip defenseman, and hopefully the Leafs brain trust will get that done before the trade deadline in a few weeks. We've only been waiting 52 years for another Stanley Cup but we're trying to stay positive. Several years ago, I read a book by the late Michael Luckman called Alien Rock, and I learned about Merrill Fankhauser and his UFO experience on the island of Maui, and then later, how Merrill came into possession of some strange recordings of signals which seemed to originate underwater and off the coast of Malibu, some say from an underwater UFO base. And he's here to explain how these experiences have shaped and influenced his music. Is it possible his musical compositions aren't really his own, but that they come from someplace else, perhaps even off-planet? Merle Fankhauser has led one of the most diverse and interesting careers in music. He was born in Louisville, Kentucky and moved to California when he was 13 years old. Merle went on to become one of the innovators of surf music and psychedelic folk rock. His travels from Hollywood to his 15-year jungle experience on the island of Maui have been documented in numerous books and magazines in the United States and Europe. Merle has gained legendary international status throughout the field of rock music. His credits include over 250 songs published and released. He's a multi-talented singer-songwriter and unique guitar player whose sound has delighted listeners for over 35 years. In the early 60s, Merle led the instrumental surf group The Impacts, who had a hit with their album titled Wipeout which was reissued in 1994 on Delphi Records in the United States and in 1995 on Repertoire Records in Germany. Merle Fankhauser, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm doing good, Richard, and it's good to be back on the air with you again. Yes, it's a, it's a, a real pleasure. Uh, for, for people not familiar with the origin of surf music because you're you're a really pioneered uh, this this sound. Uh, take me back to those heady days in the early 1960s when you were creating, helping to create this new genre of music. Yeah, it actually happened. Well, I with a band of uh, high school students, the friends that I went to high school with, we formed a band. And we called it the Impacts, and it just happened that the sax player's father, Joel Rose, owned the biggest auditorium, the Rose Garden Ballroom in Pismo Beach, right on the beach, between L.A. and San Francisco. At that time, about 1960-61, it was the biggest auditorium. And we had been playing up the street at a little... A teenage kind of uh, hangout, 
and uh, we were drawing more people than the big uh, 1500 uh, capacity auditorium down the street they were lined up so he hired us as the regular band and we started as teenagers i was 17 and we ended up uh, backing a lot of the big names of that day, like the groups like the Coasters and Isley Brothers and Little Anthony and the Imperials. And I was a surfer, and I started uh, writing these songs, instrumentals, because I was a big fan of the Ventures and Dwayne Eddy and the Champs at that time. And so we started doing a lot of instrumentals and I wrote a bunch of instrumentals and put surfing titles to them like kick out and dropping in and and then uh, I came across the idea to call one of the songs Wipeout and we'd been trying it out on the audiences and a talent scout heard us and this was uh, oh gosh it was uh right about the summer of 62 and uh, they took us down to LA because we had all these original songs and in one afternoon Richard we cranked out an entire album of instrumental songs that came out uh, around November of 62 called Wipeout by the Impacts on an album, a vinyl album, and it had a surfer getting wiped out on the cover. And that's how everything started, and it just kept going from there. Except, Merle, originally, if I'm not mistaken, you didn't get you didn't get proper uh, uh, your proper due for Wipeout because that was, I mean, people remember the Safaris version or the Ventures version. Did someone rip you off? Well, actually, what happened, Richard, is the two producers that produced us, they were very crafty at doing this with young bands that didn't know anything about copyrights or publishing. They would take them in the studio, and of course, we were all so happy just to know we were going to have a record out. We would record all these songs and then leave and go back to wherever we lived, and just think the money was going to come rolling in. Well, when the album came out, it was in every music store and drugstore all over California. And uh, when we looked at the back, there were no songwriting credits on it. And I remember, uh, you know, just recording these songs and, you know, not knowing anything about the paperwork. And then later on, uh, my dad and the owner of the Rose Garden Ballroom got together and said, well, did you boys sign anything? And we said no, and of course we were all too young to sign anything. And then they called us down uh, in January of 63 and wanted to record my song Wipeout and a few others as a possible 45. So we went down there and we refused to record until they gave us some papers. So we signed all these papers and they were popular songwriters 
contracts, and we thought, okay, we got something now. We took it home, and our parents said, well, you boys just signed all of your rights away for a dollar. And so these singles never came out, but some of the songs came out on compilation albums on Delphi Records, a label that discovered Richie Valens. And the Bobby Fuller Five. Bobby Fuller Four, and the head of this, the label was Bob Keane, mm. who I ended up having many meetings with afterwards. And he said, well, I paid the royalties and everything to these two producers, uh, Knowles and Hilder, and you have to go see them to get your money. So this went on for a few years, and my dad tried to get an attorney, but the attorney wanted so much money to even take the case that it wasn't worth it. So I found out that in 19, by 1994, when Pulp Fiction came out and all this music became popular again, that the original contracts we had signed with them were expired. So I went in and re-copyrighted all of the songs myself. And we didn't get anything for any of those songs on that album that eventually sold a million copies. So when it expired, I went back to Bob Keane and I said, okay, we're not dumb teenagers anymore now. We want our money and a new contract since he was putting them out because some of the songs were in Pulp Fiction. And finally, you know, after all of those years, we started getting a trickle of of money coming in, which we still do, and we got rights to those songs that we wrote. But it it was a big learning experience, is oh, all I can man. say. And, and now I understand it all, 40 albums later, and, uh, you know, I'm doing okay off of the things I... I've recorded after that several different groups. That's a hard lesson to learn, but you are certainly not alone. So many artists, uh, you know, not to mention so many, you know, great blues artists and so forth have just been totally uh, ripped off. It's an unfortunate side of the industry. Oh, that's true, especially the black blues artists. Same sort of thing. They didn't understand publishing and copyrights and now i have young groups coming to me to help me and to read their contracts before they sign them and uh you know i'm glad that i can help some of these young and up-and-coming artists and then probably as you know in the 90s surf music came back really big and it started getting used on tv commercials and uh, a lot in movies and i got some in some of the movies that were there and so i made some money off of that and uh, recently uh, a song i wrote not an instrumental but a sort of a folk rock ballad from 1967 uh is in the new chappaquiddick movie that's been out now for about nine months and i've got some other things coming out in movies so that old music still has a place for, you know, film and TV. Excellent. Well, I'm, I'm so pleased that you're finally uh, getting your, your, um, your just rewards. Um, 
what I first became familiar with you through um, the late Michael Luckman's book Alien Rock, and I, I just I want to go back to I guess your first sighting of a UFO was that in Kentucky when you were uh, a child? No, it wasn't. My dad was an airplane pilot, and we moved from Kentucky out to. Uh, California in 1958, and my dad got the lease on a glider port in a little town, Lake Elsinore. You might be familiar with that, south of Los Angeles. And I remember I started reading all of those books about UFOs, Project Blue Buck, and my dad taught me to fly a Piper Cub when I was only 14 and I ended up soloing in a Schweitzer 126 sailplane and so I was always into aviation and I remember asking him do you think there's really uh, people out there in outer space and he said oh yeah there has to be the universe is too too big for us to be the only ones so I kept looking all of the time for UFOs and then we moved up to the central California coast, the San Luis Obispo, Pismo, Santa Maria area. And my dad was a flight instructor and a charter pilot at the airport in Santa Maria. So I was doing some flying there, and I was always looking for UFOs. And then in 1973, I moved with my band Moo to the island of Maui. And in 1970, Jimi Hendrix had uh, done a film there called Rainbow Bridge. And all of these hippies were talking about seeing UFOs on the island. And then when I moved there, I found out that even in Hawaiian legend, uh, the Hawaiians in the 1800s saw things flying out of the crater and going into the ocean which they called the flying pearly shells. So I was on a, a quest to either see a UFO, and I was very much into the lost continent of Mu that supposedly the Hawaiian Islands were part of. And I found a lot of pre-Hawaiian ruins in the jungle there, pillars and cut stone sidewalks under the halbush growth that looked like Mayan Indian uh, structures. And uh, so I talked to a lot of the people that were in the Hendrix film, and they claimed they saw a UFO in the crater that I told Michael Luckman about, and he put it in his book. So one night in 1974, I think it was, about, we were up at the top of the Haleakala Crater on Maui looking at the sunset. And after the sunset, there was a group of tourists standing there. And this pulsating blue light came over the crater and sort of lit up the floor of the crater. And there was a gentleman, an older man, standing next to me that had been in the Navy in the Second World War. And he goes, what the heck is that? He said, it's not a helicopter. There's not a sound. And he said, I have never seen anything like that. Just as he said that, two other smaller lights came out of it, 
and went up on each side, and they started uh, shining a beam from one to the next that formed a tetrahedron, an inverted pyramid. And we were all just spellbound. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm finally seeing a UFO. It's got to be. And it must have been there for three or four minutes, and everybody was just in awe. And then the two little lights went back into the one big pulsating light, and it shot straight up in an instant and disappeared. And uh, the whole band and myself, we were just amazed. We drove back down to our house in Haiku, Maui. I turned on the reel-to-reel tape recorder, and the song, Calling from a Star, just came out. And Lyrics uh, and music, everything all at once? Everything all at once. And I think I talked to you about this in later years. I had a chance to meet John Lennon at yes. Harry Nelson's house, and we both talked about how songwriting was very odd, like you don't know when it's going to happen or where it comes from. And John called it automatic writing. And he, he said the same thing I did, that if you don't get it down some way on a tape recorder and write it down, uh, you can forget it and it'll just go away and you can't get it back. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, that's interesting, Merle, because your UFO experience on Maui and his UFO experience in Greenwich Village, same year, I believe, 74. I think so. Yes, you're right. I got goosebumps now just when you said that. So... Uh, we recorded a rough demo of it in our house there on Maui. And then in 1978, I went to Los Angeles into a professional studio. And I had Gary Malabar, the great drummer from Steve Miller's band, and uh, a guitar player, Ben Benet, who had played on Steely Dan records, and a studio bass player and keyboardist. 
And then Peter Noon from Herman's Hermits, who I'd met, thought the song was interesting, so he came in and doubled my voice on the choruses. And man, we had a wonderful version of the song, Calling from a Star, and it was released around the, uh, oh, I guess it was around the end of 78, and then I went back to Maui, took a film crew with 16 millimeter big cameras up to the top of the crater and uh, did a version to the track that we had recorded of the song. And we sent it out on those old three-quarter U-Matic uh, tapes to various TV stations, mostly in California and L.A. and San Francisco and some uh, on the East Coast that played it on television. And then label in L.A. put the first version of Calling from a Star out on a vinyl 45 uh, single. And it got quite a bit of airplay and got on some radio charts. And now, all these years later, it's out again on this new Eclectia uh, two-CD set. And it's bands from the United States, Canada, and U.K., all doing songs about UFOs. And everybody feels that their music is influenced by ETs or UFOs. And there's some interesting interviews on there by people, and one of them is by uh, the UFO researcher Grant Cameron. And uh, he talks about the influence of ETs and UFOs on music. And he mentioned Michael Luckman's book also. Yes, um, Grant and I have talked about uh, his his work in that field. do you do you believe now looking back that you received a direct download from from that UFO in Maui that inspired that song? Well, you know, <laughs> I'm getting those goosebumps again. Uh, there is definitely something I can't really say for sure because I don't know. Did it come? You know, from that something happened when that UFO sighting because I, I could feel it. And right away, as soon as I got in the house, I picked up my guitar and just turned on the tape recorder and it came out. But many of my songs since then, Richard, uh, have come out that way, even songs that have nothing to do, you know, with UFOs or anything. And then uh, here in 2014, uh, I heard about this, I think we talked about it, the signals from Malibu that are coming from that underwater uh, structure anomaly that's under the ocean off of Malibu there. Yes, we should mention, just for people who didn't hear that uh, on the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone, uh, you received this information from... Uh, Was it an old radio operator who who was receiving the signal and recorded it and sent it to you? Yes, and Michael Luckman... He talked to Michael Luckman, and uh, Michael told him you should send these to these sounds to Merle Fankhauser. And as soon as I put it on, I heard this almost like an old 60s James Bond spacey kind of guitar 
uh, lick in my head, and I recorded that to a click track, and then played it for some of the band members, and I put some some of the signals in there, and then. I realized there was four more minutes of these signals that I hadn't listened to. So I went out in the studio and sat down at the piano and put on the headphones. And the signals were coming in my headphone. And I started playing this figure on the piano, kind of classical, jazzy, not really rock and roll. Maybe, you know, more like classical music than anything. And I'm not a real good piano player, but this melody just sort of came out. And um, I, you know, played it for the band, and they said, wow, another one? And I said, yeah. So we dubbed all of our parts to what I had played, and that song came out as Messages from the Dome. And the first one came out as Signals from Malibu, and I played it for my then-UK label, Gonzo Multimedia, and they loved it and said, if you do a whole album of this kind of music instrumentally, we'll put it out. So within a month and a half, I was on a writing jag that was unbelievable, and the band couldn't believe I was just coming up with one song after another. And we recorded the whole album, sent it to them. They put it out, started getting a lot of play in Europe. And I got on a lot of shows like yours and Coast to Coast. And, uh, oh, gosh, there were so many of them. And I think I told you there was a station in Austin, Texas, one in Sacramento, and one in England. And on Messages from the Dome, the... I brought the signals up loud in the mix, and there's a part on the end where it sounds like a lady's voice yodeling, a high-pitched kind of thing. And on those stations, when that came in, it shut their stations off. It knocked them off the air. What What was peculiar about those stations, and it didn't knock off the other ones? Those stations all had new digital mixing boards. The stations that had older mixing boards, especially the ones that were analog, it didn't bother them at all. So through William McEwen, uh, his engineer worked for George Lucas, Bob Edwards. I sent these signals to Bob, and that spot in particular... And I said, Bob, what's going on here? And I told him how it was shutting these stations off. And he said, well, besides there being a carrier signal and then this other high-pitch signal, he said, there's a signal that's higher above that that I can see on the scope that human ears can't hear. And he said, it's only in that spot. And I think that might be what's doing it. So I was on another show out of Owings Mills, Maryland. You might probably know him, Dr. Bob Hieronymus. Yes. And he really surprised me, Richard. He was playing that, and it it didn't shut him off. And then he played me this Billy Myers recording 
of this UFO that came over his house in the early 1970s, and he recorded it on a reel-to-reel tape recorder with a handheld mic, and you can hear his dog barking at it in the background. And unbelievably, the signals were exactly the same. Wow. It sounded like the same signal, and I told Dr. Bob that, and he said, well, I noticed that right away when you <laughs> sent it to me. That's why I played this. And so I said, well, at first I thought, well, maybe this is the government doing this because there's a naval air station just a few miles up the coast from where this anomaly is under the water. Right, the Malibu Dome. And some people believe it's an underground uh, UFO UFO base base, or it could be a joint UFO uh, sort of black ops military base. Uh, Right. And and, uh, I thought maybe it was something to do with the government. But when Dr. Bob said that, I went, hmm, there's more to this. Then I ran into an old Shumash Indian who's a security guard at one of the places I played here, south of here in San Inez. He knew about my Return to Moo album and some of my other stuff, and I started talking to him about this anomaly, if he knew anything about it. And he got this big smile on his face, and he said, our tribe has known about that for over a thousand years. He said, that was built by the people that were here before us. Hmm. Fascinating. And I just got these goosebumps again. And then up in the mountains of Malibu there, I remember when I lived in L.A., I lived in Woodland Hills, and we used to go uh, hiking in Malibu and go to the beach at Malibu. There's like a monolith-type stone pillar up there that has these ancient, I guess you'd have to call them hieroglyphs. And now that I think about it, it's pointing right out there at Point Doom where this structure is under the water. And this old Indian said that the legend says when the ocean level was down lower that the Indians used to use that as like a a pier to fish off of. Fridays mean a visit from Christian DiCadieu, the real John Constantine. Hey, Christian, how are you? Hey, Richard. I'm doing well. It's Friday, and the weekend is here. Thank it, God for that. <laughs> yes, but no, uh, no rest for you, I'm guessing. You're always busy. Now, last week when we had you on, we were talking about your authentication protocol. You mentioned that you're able to take an EVP and run it through reverse speech technology. What other sorts of authentication protocols do you, do you use? That's, that's a great question. Uh, another form of authentication that we use, now this is not so much for an alleged EVP, uh, or uh, for an EVP, but I would use it more so for a client or even someone who might be allegedly possessed. It's something which is referred to as VSA, which stands for Voice Stress Analysis, and it was originally created by the Israelis. And this is an amazing technology which is currently being used by Homeland Security, many different intelligence agencies throughout the world. Uh, and what it does is that it's a lie detector. It's like a polygraph, but 
through your voice. And it's very, very hard to cheat this and to beat this. It's possible, but it's, uh, it's very difficult. So I cross-referenced this with the client while in conjunction with reverse speech, I used this technology, which was created by the Israelis, uh, voice stress analysis, VSA. And uh, if I have also an individual, who, if there's a recording of an individual that might be in its uh, demonic possession, and I want to verify the authenticity of the recording or the individual that's in front of me, while I'm recording it myself, I will also use VSA as a, a secondary method of validation for any type of EVP or any type of demonic possession as well. Just curious, why would a client hire you? They claim they have paranormal activity. If they, if they know they're lying, they're just perpetrating a hoax, why would they, why would they do that? Well, it's possible that the client may have someone in their environment who's pulling the hoax and they're unaware of it. Maybe the owner of the home is unaware that possibly their significant other or their kids are doing something mischievous. Maybe the communication factor amongst the individuals or the family members isn't the greatest and there's some tomfoolery that's going on. And the fact is, is that somebody is assuming that that's something uh, unexplained is happening and I don't want to take someone's uh, I don't want to take someone on as a client when there is uh, something which is uh, not uh, authentic so it's not necessarily the client I mean, and, and you and you speak to everybody in the home then presumably and you run them all through the VSA is that right yes that is correct ah That's okay absolutely correct. and is this a piece of equipment that you carry with you with you or do you do the recording in person and then you take it back to the shop and run it through the VSA? I can do it both. I can do real time and then I can also, uh, I can do it real time. Well, if someone has a recording, I can certainly put the recording through the, uh, through, through the software. Uh, or if I'm, if the person is in front of me, I can certainly, um, uh, it'll tell me in real time whether the person is lying or not while I'm interviewing them. If people have unwanted paranormal activity in their home or their business and they need to get rid of it fast, how do they get a hold of Paranormal Contractors? You can reach us at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com or visit our YouTube channel, which is Paranormal Contractors, or 1-866-724-0800 or 416-994-0777. Thanks, Christian. We'll talk next week. You bet. Christian DiCadieu, the real John Constantine of Paranormal Contractors, a division of crime and trauma scene cleaners. Paranormal Contractors. For things that go bump in the night. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Surf music pioneer Merle Fankhauser is here. I've talked to some people uh, down in the Malibu area and, and one particular um, researcher who's written about underwater UFO activity. And he says it's become a real popular pastime for people to go down to the beach at night and watch these lights coming out of the water. Have you, have you partaken in that, uh, in that activity? Well, Grant Cameron was going to come out here and we were going to go down there 
together, but the weather was so bad. We were going to do it in November, and we were having rain and and all of this. And uh, he had some other things happening that we didn't do it. But here's a, another funny story. When when I was in the impacts back in the early 60s, we all went down. We would go down to Malibu to go surfing from up here. And we had finished a day of surfing, and there were some local surfers uh, building a campfire. And they said, oh, you guys ought to stick around and watch the lights come in and out of the ocean. And we went, what? And so we're laughing as we're driving home, and a friend of mine said, oh, they're seeing the pelicans. They do that up here in Pismo Beach in Santa Barbara also. They dive in the water, and, and he was laughing. He said because they were acting like it was something odd, you know. And then I was on uh, a clear channel radio station in San Luis Obispo uh, on the Dave Congleton show, and I was talking about this when the Signals from Malibu album came out, and he was taking phone calls, and we got a phone call from this lady that said that her and her mom and her aunt uh, used to go down to Malibu there in the very late 40s, 49 or 50, and watch these lights go in and out of the water. So that had been happening for all these years down there. And I've seen people have sent me things that they've filmed with their video with their cell phones even of things and they don't just look like uh, anything you can easily explain away that's all i can say so there's definitely something going on down there and then uh, the host of the radio show dave congleton he knew somebody that worked at the uh, point magooey naval air station and he called him up on the air and said, yeah, I've got musician Merle Fankhauser here. And he's talking about this underwater uh, anomaly that's there that people keep seeing lights going in and out of. Do you know anything about that? And he goes, well, I've heard about it, but I can't talk about that. And just said goodbye abruptly and hung up. Oh, my. So um, that tells you something. Um I just want to go back to uh, Eclectia again. Uh, the yeah. uh, this this two CD compilation, which features uh, bands from the United States, Canada, the, the, musicians, artists that have been inspired by UFO ET encounters, and uh, your song uh, "Calling from a Star," which you mentioned has been sort of uh, enhanced. Um, how how do people get a hold of the album? First of all. Okay, well, the album is available at most places on the Internet, at all sorts of online sources. I think it's available at Amazon. And then I heard of a lot of people getting it at this place called Bandcamp. And I told uh, uh, Mark to have Joanna Summerscales. Do you know her, Richard? Have you heard of her? Well, I know she's on the album, but... Um, she uh, has a popular uh, UFO-type show in London, radio show, and uh, 
she can send you either electronically the entire album or she, uh, she could probably send you a CD, but probably she'd rather send it to you electronically. So uh, it's it's out there to be purchased online, the two-CD set. And an interesting thing, I don't know, I sent Mark the picture of the album cover. I do have that, it's yes. A, it's a parody of Sgt. Pepper's yes. uh, cover, and down where the Beatles were standing on the cover, they now have three gray aliens, and I'm up in the left-hand corner just below Neil Young. And, and Rod above. Serling. Rod Serling is just above you. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. How appropriate. And did you get the little map that they have that shows where everybody's at on it? Or uh, I don't see the map, but I, I'm seeing, uh, I, I think I spy my colleague from Coast to Coast, Jimmy Church, down there. Yes, he's there. Uh, I think Stanton Friedman is over on the left somewhere, and I've been trying yes, to figure out... Yes, I can out. see Stanton. Yes, I see Stanton. And, uh, th well, do you have... Did they send you the CD, or what do you have? It's, you know, we had a postal strike up here, so it's it's in the, it's it's en route in the mail. The postal strike oh. is over, but everything is backlogged, so... Uh, oh, shoot. Okay, well, there's a map in there that says who's where, you know, and they're all numbered, and you can identify them. I've been so busy doing interviews with press and radio, and we're about to do a TV show. You know, I do the Tiki Lounge TV show. Yes. It's up here in San Luis and Santa Barbara County, and it's, uh, oh gosh, in Hawaii. And uh, we're going to do a show on that, and I'm trying to put some video from these various different bands that have video, uh, you know, together for a show. Fantastic. Eclectia is, uh, is the name of the, uh, the CD, a double CD. Uh, you mentioned Santa Barbara County. I wondered, have you been to see Alan Parsons' new recording studio up there? No, I haven't. I haven't seen that. Now, I, 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 I interviewed Alan Parsons, and he told me an interesting story about going to Roswell. Uh, oh. And, um, and uh, he and his wife met an old gentleman up there who claimed to have seen the bodies from the craft. Wow. Yes. So mm. um, I wanted to ask you about somebody else. And um, I don't know... Uh, if you were hanging around Malibu much in the late 60s, but there used to be a, a, a club down there called The Raft. Do you remember it? No, I don't. Because there was an artist who played there. He was uh, not exactly the house band, but he was a regular there, Jim Sullivan. He was kind of the, a country folk musician. You and, know, that name is familiar. Well, he recorded kind of a landmark album in the um, early 70s called UFO. And oh. uh, then Jim just, he decided, he wasn't having much luck in the L.A. scene, he decided he was going to drive his VW Beetle uh, east to Nashville and, and take his uh, try his luck there. He never made it. He just disappeared. They found his car. They found his guitar. And it's just kind of been one of those legendary disappearances, but people wonder if it might have something to do with UFOs. I mean, he was fascinated by uh, by UFOs. Wow, what a story. 
So I, I, I just I, I was wondering and hoping maybe maybe you had crossed paths with Jim at some point. No, but the name is familiar. I remember the name. So you have other songs and albums. Uh, you know, the Area Fifty One Suite. Uh, you have other songs that have been obviously inspired uh, by UFOs, ETs. Uh, have you had any sort of contact or uh, experiences recently, more recently? No, actually, that's the interesting thing, Richard. As I mentioned, ever since I was a kid, I was looking for UFOs and never saw one till 1974 at the top of the crater on Maui. And one other time here in Arroyo Grande, out in the foothills, I saw something that was a stationary light that was just sort of hovering, but it was only there for a little bit, and then it disappeared. And that, in all of these years, is the only other thing that I've ever seen. Fascinating. Um, Yeah. Tell me about another album, obviously, inspired by... Uh, UFOs, ETs, Message to the Universe, The Alien Rock Suite, which came out, I guess, what, eight, nine years ago? Uh, well, actually, that album came out in 1986, oh. a vinyl album. Okay, this is the reissue and, of it, then, I'm looking at. Yeah, the reissue came out, uh, oh gosh, I, there's so many albums now, I, I lose track. Maybe four or five years ago, a small label in San Francisco finally put it out on CD, but it hadn't been out on CD till then. And that cover painting is just so awesome Mm -hmm. because uh, I I did see two what I thought were two UFOs driving the windy road through the jungle to Hana, and that was in broad daylight. And that was uh, after I, I saw the the uh, UFO on the top of the crater. I did see something that I thought were UFOs. So I told this artist friend of mine when I was writing these UFO-inspired songs in 86 about this, and he was a very clever artist that lived there on Maui. And uh, I told him the whole scene. He came out, took a picture of me. I had a cabin that I'd built on a friend's land in in the rainforest, actually, because I was so into studying these ruins that I found. And he took a picture of me there, and I said, yeah, and I want a little band of aliens playing next to me and, and put the two UFOs up in the sky. And I went, he went home with it in town to his his uh, studio in in. Actually, he lived in a little village called Kuau that was near Kahului, not too far. And uh, he came out in 10 days. He said, come to the studio. i got to show you something. And when he showed me that album cover, I was just flabbered at it. Yeah, it's fantastic. And I'm a big fan of the color purple, so uh, I love love the album cover. Oh, are you talking about the Message to the Universe cover? The, that's what I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yes, yes. It's the, it, yeah. The, the purple, purple one. With, I'm wearing a purple robe on Return to Move. That cover. No, the the, uh, the Alien Rock Suite. The message to the universe has okay. uh, is the background is all in purple. 
Oh, okay. That's what I'm looking at right now. Um, I wanted to, if yeah. I could circle back for a minute to your meeting with John Lennon uh, at um, Harry Nilsson's house. Did he talk to you about, no, he, had he had, oh yeah, he had his UFO experience by then. Did he talk to you about it? You know, he didn't. There were so many people there. And what happened, Richard, I I came in, you know, I just, I'd flown over from Maui to to do the re- some recordings. And uh, Harry said, I'm having this party. And they, they sent a car over to pick me up at the producer's house. And I walked in and there was like 35 people and it was a full-on party. And I looked across the room and I went, oh my God, that's John Lennon. And, um, well, I'll, I'll tell you this, and you can edit it out if you need to. I had long, full, blonde hair then, and uh, I grew Maui Wowie when I lived on Maui. <laughs> and I always kept one under each ear. I haven't uh, touched this stuff in many, many years, but uh, I think about how crazy I was to bring it over to the mainland. I'll say. And when I saw John Lennon and Harry said, oh, this is my friend from Maui. He's going to play us a tune. I had my acoustic Martin and I'd never gotten stage fright in my entire life. And my lips started twitching when I saw John Lennon. So I pulled out one of these Maui Wowies and lit it up and took a few heavy puffs. And Harry took it and took it right over to John and John took a couple of puffs and I would mulch it with mangoes and papayas, and it had this real sweet, juicy fruit chewing gum sort of taste. And he goes, what is this stuff? <laughs> and I said, Maui Wowie. <laughs> and uh, so this girl next to him kept elbowing him, wanting him to pass it over, and he didn't want to <laughs> pass it to her. So I sang my song, On Our Way to Hana, which talks about seeing two UFOs that are on the cover of that Message to the Universe album. And uh, so after I finished that, uh, I went over to this alcove, and John came right over to me and started talking about songwriting and saying, oh, that was an interesting song. And, And then we just started talking about how odd songwriting was. But we never came to the uh, to, to to the subject matter of UFOs. Fascinating. And I wished we would have because, as you mentioned, it, it, I think it was in the same year he saw that with May Pang, and uh, we we didn't get to talk about that. Isn't that interesting? I f- that's kind of a common thread I find with, uh, and I've never seen a UFO, but I, I've, I've mm-hmm. uh, Lord knows I've talked to hundreds of people that have, and it's funny how it, you may, you could have two people who see the same thing, the same craft or whatever, and after they see it, they don't talk about it again. What is that? Yeah, I don't know. Fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's 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 odd. <laughs> There's a lot of odd, you know, coincidences to all of this, I think. Absolutely. When you were writing, uh, I mean, this was before your, your UFO encounter in Maui, but when you would 
come out of the, after surfing down in Malibu and come out of the water, uh, did you have songs in your head? Did you think maybe, you know, hey, where did that come from? No. No, I don't remember anything like that. I just remember surfing at Pismo and uh, the power of the waves and that sort of sound of no sound when you're in the tube. I remember I was trying to recreate that, uh, you know, with the guitar. And I remember one person that interviewed me and said, boy, if Fender hadn't invented that reverb sound, uh, you wouldn't have been able to come up with some of those sounds you came up with. And I said, well, I hate to tell you this, Fender hadn't rever inter uh, invented that reverb, spring reverb tank yet that everybody started buying. And the Safaris got one, and that's how they made that crashing sound on the beginning of the record. A lot of people said, oh, they broke a two-by-four and, and then put it in in reverb, but I, I don't think that's really what happened because that became a sound a lot of guys would turn around and, you know, it was a self-contained reverb unit because the first Fender amplifiers, none of them had reverb in it until they built this reverb uh, head and you could kick that and it would make that right, right. sound. And uh, I said that was chamber reverb in the studio that was on those early records. Ah. They put a speaker at the end of the room and uh, a microphone at the other end and I even got to go in one at Gold Star Recording in L.A., and the room at the back was concrete, but it was shaped like a, um, a, a rounded sort of trough. And people used to like to book the room after it rained because they said the reverb chamber, when it was damp, gave off a certain kind of reverb that you wouldn't get at any other interesting, time. Interesting, interesting. And uh, that's what the reverb was on the Impact's records and Dick Dale's records at first and a lot of other ones. So uh, there was a lot of, uh, you know, interesting things happening back then. Merrill, always uh, fascinating speaking with you, and I, uh, I want to thank you for spending some more time with me this afternoon. Well, thank you very much, Richard, for having me on again, and uh, please send me a link to this when it's up. Absolutely, I will. And just a reminder, I'll, the, the, uh, the new, uh, the, the compilation CD, double CD, Eclectia, uh, featuring Merrill Fankhauser and many others, uh, is out and available now. Yes, you can get it at all good online sources, including Bandcamp. Thanks again. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be right back with a few words on what's coming up next on Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly syndicated radio program, The Conspiracy Show, why not consider becoming a supporter? Go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet 
That's right. We've changed the name of our Patreon page. Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. And check out our three support tiers. The Truth Seeker tier, the Whistleblower tier, and the Star Chamber tier. Donors can receive access to an exclusive monthly Google Hangout on air or a monthly live chat with me. You can also be eligible for a monthly draw and a chance to win Conspiracy Show and Conspiracy Unlimited merch. Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. Patreon.com forward slash Strange Planet. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hey, be sure to join me Monday. What's happening deep underground in the mountains of North Carolina? Independent investigator Mary Joyce reveals what whistleblowers are telling her about a top-secret underground military base she's calling the New Area 51. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.